But the gospel we're looking at today is Luke. Luke was not Jewish. Luke was a Gentile, a non-Jew. He came from that yellow out there. All of that yellow represented the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. They had conquered the known world. And after the split between Jesus' followers and the Jews after the year 70, very few Jews continued to convert to the followers of Jesus. The split had happened. And so the future of the church was with all of that yellow, which was Gentile, Greeks, Romans, Africans. And Luke was converted by Paul. He's mentioned in one of Paul's letters as one of his disciples. So Luke never knew Jesus, but he learned about Jesus from Paul. Tradition is that he was a very learned man, that he was a physician. He could read and write well. And he felt it very important that all of that yellow learn about Jesus in a way that would they could understand even if they weren't Jewish. So that's why his gospel is called the gospel to the Gentiles, to the new converts, to the future of the church, who knew very little about Judaism. And so his goal is to make Jesus understandable to anybody, even if they were not Jewish. Now this is what was going on at the time and why he felt it important to write. Some of the converts from that yellow area were saying to the apostles and their successors, well, then Judaism is finished. They have rejected Jesus, they have crucified him, and now they no longer accept us as part of their tradition. So is God rejecting Judaism? Should we punish the Jews for crucifying Jesus? So within the church, the question comes up, do we just forget about the Old Testament? Is it over? Is it wrong? The Romans and the Greeks who were watching this movement grow in that yellow area, and it grew by Paul's churches, and they weren't buildings, they were house churches. They would meet in their homes, and they'd have discussion of scripture. They would be taught by Paul or one of his disciples, and then he'd move on to another city. And so by the time of the 80s, there were little dots all over that yellow area of Christian communities growing in house churches. But the followers of Jesus, these converts, would not worship the Roman emperor as divine. The Romans believed their emperor was God. The Christians wouldn't go to many of the festivals in public because every public festival in Rome they would celebrate the gods and they'd have a prayer to the gods. So the Christians would keep apart from that. And so the Romans began to wonder, who are these people? They don't worship our gods. They meet behind closed doors secretly. What are they doing? Are they planning revolution? You see, every authoritarian regime fears private meetings of groups because they suspect that's where the trouble is going to come from. 
So the Romans began to become very cautious about this group. One of the Roman historians in the late first century, Tacitus, said that Christianity is a dangerous superstition. It's dangerous because these people don't mix with us and they're growing in numbers. What are they up to? And why is it a superstition? Because the Romans only respected religions that had a long history. Any new religion was looked upon as a cult, a flash in the pan, something without pedigree or heredity. And the other things, believe it or not, the Romans felt that the Christians were cannibals. Why? They were eating the body of their god. So there were a lot of very bad images going around in the Roman Empire about Christianity. And there were Gentile Christians who were saying, we don't need Judaism anymore. It's, it's finished. They killed Jesus. We're starting something entirely new. So these are some of the things that were circulating both within the church and within the empire that Luke, this learned man who converted to Christianity, wanted to address. And so if you look at the handout that I've given you today, he has three goals in mind as he's writing this gospel. He wants to show that Christianity is not a cult. It's a universal religion rooted in ancient Judaism that went back thousands of years. And that it has a mission to the whole world. Judaism is not rejected, but it's stage one of God's plan of salvation. Stage two is the ministry of Jesus. And stage three is the ministry of the church until the end of time. And that's why I have that little arc over all three stages, because Luke constantly mentions in the gospel that the Holy Spirit was at work in all three stages. God is preparing the world in stage one, preparing the world for Jesus. Jesus appears as the fulfillment of stage one. And then the church takes Jesus to the world in preaching and in sacrament to make him present among the Gentiles. So even though the Gentiles never knew Jesus personally, the Holy Spirit, through faith, sacrament, and the preaching of the church, brings Jesus into their lives. So God is present in all three stages of salvation history. It's a grand design of God for the world. Nobody is left out only if they choose not to listen. Nobody is forced, but from the beginning of time, the offer has been there, and Judaism was giving the first word of God. It's fulfilled in Jesus, and then the church takes Jesus to the world. So it's a wonderful, beautiful vision of how everything fits together. There's no fight between the Old and New Testament. There's only a transition from Jesus' return to heaven and the ministry of the church. So that it all is guided by the Spirit of God, and Jesus, as God, is present in all three stages. 
So he has this wonderful vision about how God wants to bring salvation to all. Now, he full knows by listening to Paul and the apostles that some people opted out. God never forces. God only offers. But everybody is included. So that's his first goal. This is a universal religion that goes back to the beginning of time. This is not a recent cult. Secondly, Christianity is no threat to the Roman Empire. These Christians are not planning revolution behind closed doors. They will not provide, oppose Roman rule with violence. They are peace-loving, hardworking people. Jesus teaches nonviolence. But the third goal is a very careful critique, criticism of all of that yellow. Because even though there was peace, the Romans had conquered all of that and brought peace to all of that area, it was a very cruel peace. The Romans ruled with an iron fist. They took slaves from every part of that yellow territory that they conquered and brought them as slaves to Rome. They imposed heavy taxes on all of that conquered land. They allowed no self-rule, and anyone who did not pay their taxes or opposed Roman rule was crucified and left to hang on a cross to have their bodies eaten by birds. That was the way the Romans treated criminals. Jesus was lucky in the sense they allowed his body to be taken down after a few hours. But the common thing was let the bodies hang there as deterrence to revolution. Luke is subtly said, and nobody in that Roman Empire had much power except the elite, the army, the wealthy, and the emperor. 80% were at the bottom. The third purpose of Luke's gospel is to show that Jesus' message is for everybody, not just the powerful and the elite and the rulers and the successful. Slaves, ex-slaves, women, the poor, sinners, Everyone is included. And the term savior is used for the first time in this gospel. Matthew and Mark don't use the term Jesus as savior. They call him son of God or they call him son of man. But Luke uses the term savior for a very purpose reason. The Roman emperor considered himself a savior. He was keeping order throughout that yellow. He was the savior. Luke is very subtly saying, no, he's not. That title belongs to Jesus. Because Jesus is not cruel. Jesus is compassionate to all. So Luke is dealing with the context of his time. And he's telling the story of Jesus in a way that people can understand in that time. And as a critique to the Roman Empire and all its values. The Romans were at the top, the rest of the people were at the bottom. Luke is saying in God's eyes, it's just the opposite. It's the poor, it's the women, it's the aged, it's the slaves, it's the sinners who are closer to God because they understand they need God more than the rich and the powerful. And Jesus came primarily to call those who had no hope. So it's a beautiful story that he tells, but 
we have to realize that he's, he's telling the story a little different from Matthew and, and, and Mark because he has a different audience that he's dealing with and a different time. So let us now take a look at the beginning of his gospel. Those of you, I, I would encourage you when you can, bring a, bring a Bible to our soup and study because each week we're going to look at some texts. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you could look on with someone next to you. But um, if, if, you, uh, if we look at the very beginning of the, of the uh, Gospel of Luke, he acknowledges in that opening paragraph that other people have already written Gospels. He says, there have been other writings. But I've taken upon myself, I've done a lot of investigation, I've interviewed apostles, I want to also tell you everything else about Jesus. Because the other Gospels hadn't included some of the oral tradition about what Jesus had done in his parables. So Luke wants to complete the story. And if you notice, he talks, he, he addresses it to Theophilus, T-H-E-O-P-H-I-L-U-S. That's a generic term, it's a Greek term for a lover of God. So he is saying to you Gentiles, you Greeks who love God, I am writing this gospel. Clearly written for Gentiles. Now, if you have your gospel, put your finger there at the beginning of, Mark's, of Luke's gospel and go to the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, which occurs right after John's gospel. And look at the first sentence in the Acts of the Apostles. He says, in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up into heaven. And then he goes on. Clearly, this is the same author. So Luke has written a gospel, but he's also the one that wrote the first history of the early church. Again, it's written to Gentiles. So he wrote a lot. Um, scholars in reading the gospels uh, say that his Greek is the best style Greek of all of the Gospels. All the Gospels are written in Greek, but his is a magnificent style. So this was a learned man. Okay. Now, how does he start his Gospel? Now look at the outline I gave you. If you look at that sheet with, with the uh, outline, you notice in the left-hand column, chapters 1 and 2, he has people represented at Jesus' birth who sum up or represent all the best of Judaism. Zechariah and Elizabeth, barren, aged couple. They are representing Abraham and Sarah. John the Baptist, the last prophet, the prophets who began 800 years against Jesus. He is the last prophet. Jesus is the Messiah. He's picking up from David. Simeon, the old man in the temple, represents the best of the priests. He's a retired priest. And even the Pharisees, in the first couple of chapters, when they meet Jesus as a child, they're not bad people. They're summing up the law of Moses. So Luke very clearly sees that at the birth of Jesus, all the best of Judaism is there. Not the bad priests, not the bad kings, but people who represent all of the best in Judaism. Judaism is coming to its conclusion in these people. And then if you look there at what I have with Elizabeth meets Mary, you notice I have that spanned across two stages of salvation history. Elizabeth 
who has the last prophet of the Old Testament in her womb, meets Mary, who has Jesus, stage two, in her womb, and they meet in joy and love. So the Old Testament isn't being rejected. The Jews are not denounced as bad people, even though some of them were. Luke sees that in God's plan, stage one through these wonderful people around Jesus' birth is folding into something new and beautiful, and then Jesus begins his ministry. Look uh, just briefly at, at, at column three, the Acts of the Apostles. After Jesus is gone, the church begins his ministry till the end of time, and Luke begins to write about it in the Acts of the Apostles. But look at the bottom there where one of the last scenes in Luke's gospel is Jesus meeting his disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him until they stop for dinner at an inn. And then he breaks the bread and passes the cup. And they recognized him in the... In the, it's the Eucharist. It's the beginning of the church. Jesus, from now on, after his return to heaven, will be present in the Eucharist and in the preaching of the church. So there's a beautiful transition there between Jesus' resurrection and the beginning of the church in its sacramental ministry. So again, this is very carefully put together to show there's no conflict here. It's all part of a beautiful plan, and there are people at each stage who respond positively with love. So there is salvation in Judaism. There's the completion of Jewish yearning for salvation in Jesus, and there's the bringing of that salvation to the whole world in the church. So theologically, this is a very rich story that he's telling about everything. Okay. Now let's just look uh, at a couple of the passages, uh, how he um, uh, it describes them. He has in chapter 1 an old priest who's in the temple. He and his wife don't have any children. An angel appears to him like had appeared to, uh, to Abraham and Sarah. You're going to have a child. And Zachariah says, I can't believe it. I'm an old guy. And there's a little punishment for him. It might have been a minor stroke. We don't know. But he struck dumb for a while. But his wife doesn't doubt. And she has the child. And she tells Zechariah, we're going to name the child. You can immediately see the importance of women right to start. She takes the lead. Then an angel appears to a woman, another woman, not to Joseph, to Mary, and tells her she's going to have a child. And her question is more legitimate. I'm not married. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will have a child. And immediately she accepts. So you have the end of the Old Testament as it began with an elderly couple, Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now you have the beginning of the new. And again, it's a barren woman who's going to bring life, Mary. Now, the, Luke says that as soon as the Annunciation was over, what did Mary do? If you look at the text, what did Mary do after the Annunciation? Did she go and say her prayers and seclude herself? What was the first thing she did? Look at the text. She went to help Elizabeth, right? Her cousin, 
She knew Elizabeth was barren and that she is bearing a child at an elderly age. So maybe she needs some help. So Mary's first, the first thing that happens after Mary receives Jesus, she's going to bring him to someone else in compassion. And when the two women meet, what happens in Elizabeth's womb? There's quickening. The child kicks. And Luke sees that. John is rejoicing. Even before he's born, he is seeing, in a sense, the beginning of the fulfillment of Judaism. So there's joy and love as the old ends and the new begins. And it's women who make it possible. The powerless in society. And then Mary sings her beautiful hymn of thanksgiving that comes right out of the Old Testament. Samuel, who is the last of the judges, his mother, uh, um, Hannah, was barren. She had a child, at, uh, Samuel, at an elderly age, and she sang this wonderful hymn of praise, thanking God. Mary sings the same hymn. You see, Mary goes back to the Old Testament to draw inspiration and prayer. Judaism is not bad. And you notice when she sings her wonderful Magnificat, if you look at verse 52, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. There's the theme that the, those at the bottom are going to be at to, on the top in this new kingdom. That's why Luke sees the women who are powerless having such an important role. They are beginning to take the lead. And Mary recognizes that and she says, this is the beginning of something new. All the pow powerful will be overthrown in God's time and the poor and the weak and sinners will be given preference. And then you see at the end of chapter one, Zechariah finally gets it. <laughs> and he's able to speak again. And he gives this wonderful thanksgiving to God just like his wife did and just like Mary did. Um, and he, he, um, he says, he's raised up a mighty savior for us. Notice the word savior appears for the first time. Um, and in verse 67, it's the Holy Spirit who is guiding Zechariah. So the Holy Spirit speaks not only to Mary, but it's guiding Zechariah too. The Holy Spirit is beginning to, to inspire people to speak on behalf of God. And he gives this wonderful hymn of thanking God and for, for this mighty Savior who's going to be born. Who will, he will be uh, the prophet of the Most High. He will bring us salvation. Now, chapter 2. Um, Luke goes out of his way, if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, to, to tell us details about what was going on at that particular time. The emperor had decreed that he wanted more taxes. So he decreed that everybody in his empire go back to their hometown and register so that he could get more taxes out of them. But um, Luke says, all went to their own towns. Joseph went from the town of Nazareth to Bethlehem because that was his city. So you notice this religion is not opposing the Roman Empire, it's obeying the law. It will not accept the cruelty in the empire, but it respects the law to keep order. So they obey the law, they go to Bethlehem, and who is there in Bethlehem? Shepherds in the fields, nobodies, poor, the poorest of the poor. But they receive a message. Not Herod, 
not the Pharisees, the shepherds. They receive a message. Something is very important happened. Go over to Bethlehem. And they go over and they see this child and they have a sense of the importance of this child. And they sing glory to God in the heavens. So again, it's people at the bottom, like the women. These are, these are shepherds who are able to see what's going on. Not the rich and the powerful who are blinded. And then if you, if you notice um, in, in verse 22, um, it was the custom for a family uh, with a new child, particularly a male child, to bring that child to the temple. And the custom was that the firstborn male in Judaism belonged to God. And a family with a new baby, the first boy, was to bring him to the temple and offer him to the service of God. And what the priests would do is they would take the child, bless the child, and they would give the child back to the family, and the family in place of the child would give a little gift, an animal or something to the priest. The priest didn't keep all of the firstborn. But what it shows is that Mary and Joseph are obedient to Jewish law. Just like they're obedient to Roman law, they are obedient to Jewish law. They are not rejecting Jewish law. But something beautiful happens if you see there are two elderly people, Simeon and Anna. And Simeon, in verse um, 25, said he was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, looking forward to the Messiah, looking forward to the fulfillment of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. There's the Holy Spirit again. And what happens? He sees, like the shepherds, something special in this child. And he asks Mary if he could hold the child. He might have been a retired priest. But he's an elderly man. His life is finished. No power. Nobody. Like the women. Like the shepherds. But he is inspired by the Holy Spirit too. And he takes the child. And he lifts the child up. And look what he says in verse 29. Basically, God, I can die now. I have seen your fulfillment. That's what he's saying. I have seen it. Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples. Notice the universality. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. The first words God had spoken to Abraham in chapter, 11, chapter 12 of Genesis, when he called Abraham, he said, I want you to leave this land. You're going to have a land. You're going to have people. And your people will be a light to the Gentiles. I am going to do something through Judaism for the whole world. And Simeon sees that fulfilled now. Now I see what Abraham was told. This child is going to bring the message of God's salvation to the nations. So it's a prediction, not only that Jesus is here as the fulfillment of Judaism, but stage three is going to happen after Jesus. It's a, it's a looking forward to the universality of the mission of the church. This is an old man. He's finished. But he has faith, and the Holy Spirit has given him faith. And there's also this other person there, Anna. She's a widow. In Judaism, if you were a widow and you didn't have a son or a daughter um, or an aunt or an uncle or take care of you, you were absolutely alone. You had two choices. You became a prostitute 
or you went and begged for money in the temple. She obviously took the second course. She's in the temple as an old woman. Nobody cares for her. She's alone. But she too, like Simeon, is aware of the importance of this child. The Holy Spirit is working in her. She's called a prophet, someone who speaks on behalf of God. Now, she, we're not told what, what she says, but it does say, um, at that moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. So she does speak. We don't know what word she uses. So these two old people who are on the shelf, they're done. Nobody cares about them anymore. One of them is begging in the temple for food. They are used by God to be spokespersons about Jesus and about the fulfillment of Israel. So you notice Luke is going out of his way to say how God uses the most unlikely people. The people who are at the bottom, the people who are the dregs, they're the ones who don't have anything between them and God. Money, power, fame. They've got themselves and they are hoping for something from God. They're hungry for God and so they're able to receive the message of the Holy Spirit. Very powerful message. And it's a powerful message to that yellow because the emperor doesn't care about those people. And Luke is saying, we do, and Jesus does. Now we have a very interesting uh, scene at the end of chapter 2. It's the only uh, gospel that tells us about this. Jesus at the age of 12. Now every year, people were expected at Passover time to go to the temple. Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, which was 100 miles away, and they could not go every weekend off a sacrifice. But they would try to go, as many of the people in Nazareth would go, for the High Holy Days, Passover. It was a three-day walk. And the custom was that the men, just like today, would march with the men, and the women would go with the women. Things haven't changed. And the kids would go with the women. However, when a boy reached 12, he would have his bar mitzvah, his confirmation. And Jesus would have had in Nazareth two years of training by the rabbi in the synagogue in Judaism, in Hebrew. And the requirement then, as it is today, for a young Jewish boy at their bar mitzvah gets up in front of the whole synagogue and has to give a sermon and has to give an explanation of the scriptures. This is heavy stuff. This is more demanding than confirmation for us. This is heavy stuff. But once a 12-year-old boy did that, he was a man. He was equal to the men in the, in the synagogue, and he would sit from then on with the men in the synagogue. Wouldn't sit with the women anymore. He's a man. So they go to the temple. They worship. And then the men go out one door. The women go out the other door. That was the custom. The men and the women sat separate. So Mary assumes Jesus is with Joseph. He's had his bar mitzvah. She doesn't see him. Joseph assumes Jesus is with his mother, like he always is. So they start to go home, and the men go in their group, the women go in their group, and they're starting to walk along. And then they realize Jesus is, is with neither the men nor the women. So you can imagine when parents lose a child in a strange city, the pain they must have felt. And so that explains, it, it says that they came back and they saw him, he was sitting with the 
with the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, having discussions on the Bible at the age of 12. And Mary is a little annoyed. Um, look what she says to him in um, verse, what is it, uh, 50 or so? Uh, look, she, she, child, have you treated it? Why have you treated us this way? She's a little upset. Look, your father and I have been searching for you with great anxiety. He says to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? So he's beginning to say to her, I've been an obedient child for 12 years, but there's something more that you have to realize. Now, you say, well, she must have realized that he was divine from what the angel said. Yes, but for all we know, for 12 years, he didn't show any of that divinity. He did his house chores. He learned to be a carpenter. He was growing in his humanity. But now the divinity begins to show. I had to be here to teach and to listen to these teachers of the law. Now, you notice those are not bad Pharisees. These are good teachers of the law. And what's their reaction to this 12-year-old kid? They are just amazed. Where did he get all this stuff? He's been through his bar mitzvah, but this guy's ready to be a rabbi. He knows the law. And you notice they were discussing not the New Testament, hadn't been written yet. They're discussing the Jewish tradition. And Jesus is taking the Jewish tradition very seriously, and he's teaching it to them, and they are listening and asking him questions. So again, stage one and stage two are cooperating. And then Luke tells us in two different sentences something very beautiful. He says in verse 52, they, they went back to Nazareth, and Jesus increased in wisdom in years and in divine and human favor. He is reminding his audience and us that the divinity never smothered the humanity and pushed it aside. Jesus was as fully human as every one of us. And his many years in silence in Nazareth was just as important for what he was learning. God was learning what it meant to be human by being human himself. That's a profound statement. No other major religion talks about its God having lived a full, complete human life. Other gods appear and disappear and this kind of stuff. But this God is actually taking seriously his creation, his humans. And he always knew about it, but now he is experiencing firsthand what it means to be a kid, to clean out the barn, to listen to your parents. So Luke tells us this was all important. He is growing in wisdom. God is gaining something by understanding the human condition, not by short-circuiting it, but by going through it. The divinity will shine through the humanity, not around it, not on top of it, not underneath it, but right through it. But for that to happen credibly, Jesus has to be a credible human being. If he had just appeared out of heaven and started preaching, we'll say, who is this guy? Is he an angel? Is he Superman? He went through absolutely everything that a human being in his time goes through, particularly people who are poor. So it's a beautiful statement about the importance of the, uh, of the, of the humanity. And then just briefly on chapter 3, we, we have um, uh, Luke telling us again 
uh, about something that was important. John the Baptist, now he's grown up, now he's preparing the way for Jesus, he's preaching, he's doing baptisms. And you notice in verse 7, the first cloud in the sky. Everything up to the, here has been sunshine. All of the people, even Zechariah finally gets it, and all of the people are coming along, but now the cloud appears, the thunderstorm on the horizon. And what is it? You brood of vipers. John sees the Pharisees coming. These are different Pharisees than what Jesus met at 12 years of age. These are Pharisees that are imposing incredible burdens on the people and who are going to reject Jesus. You brood of vipers, why are you coming here? God is able to, from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. You are not the successors of Israel. And then you, you see that even tax collectors came, soldiers came, and John was giving them advice. Everyone is included. Everyone. And then Jesus comes for his baptism, and again, Jesus, Jesus submits to a Jewish ritual. He doesn't have to, but he does. He shows the respect for the Jewish ritual of baptism. He goes through it, and then um, uh, uh, John says to the crowd, there is one coming more powerful than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit again. Um, and then uh, he, in verse 21, all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. You are my beloved son um, in whom I am well pleased. Whether the crowd heard that, we don't know, but certainly Jesus hears that. He is coming in his humanity to fully realize the divine powers that he has. Now he is ready to, for his ministry. Both human and divine are together. And then finally, at the end of chapter 3, Luke gives us the family history of Jesus. In biblical times, it was important to point out who your ancestors were because that gave you credibility. Who was the son of so-and-so? Who was the son of so -so? Where can I trace my blood back to? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is traced back to Abraham, the first Jew. Luke goes further. If you have your text, look at Luke chapter, 20, uh, chapter 3, verse 38, the very end of the genealogy, the oldest ancestor of Jesus. It's not Abraham. Who is it? Adam. This has been planned from the beginning. All of humanity is represented. Jesus is fulfilling everything from Adam, even before Judaism. Jesus is linked into the earliest human family. He's fully human, and he's fulfilling what they've been hoping for. So it's a beautiful story. Uh, with so, that's why you know, we could probably do a month on this. I mean, this is really rich of what he's teaching uh, and how powerful it was. Um, and the, the inspiration is very, very clear. People say, is the Bible inspired? Well, you listen to this and read this and see what it is. It's very inspiring if you have faith because it's got all of the theology of God's ways of how God deals with the world. 